Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life if times get tough or even if they don't. Today is uh, September 9th, 2016, and this is episode 1867 of the Survival Podcast. It is Friday, 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 and my voice is a little strained today, so I'm not going to belt it out like I usually do. But it is Friday. It is the Monster Show of the Week, the Expert Council Q&A. And I've got great stuff for you today, including the following. Everything you need to know about botulism and protecting yourself from it, from Erica Strauss. What the heck is a military water buffalo from Tim Glantz? Many of you are prior military and very familiar with the water buffalo, but you'll learn all about it today if you don't. And you'll learn why you should or should not consider one for civilian use from Tim Glantz. Insulating a chest freezer and more about not panicking when the power goes off with your freezer from Stephen Harris. Maximizing the interactive edge with state school systems with Mike and Sue LaPreeze. The effect of heat on medical items stored in vehicle kits with old dock bones. Dealing with vicious in-ground yellow jackets or wasps from Michael Jordan. Setting up infrastructure for a dairy operation table. We'll hear about that from Darby Simpson. And I'm going to answer a question as to why Obama would make his signature uh, achievement, his crowning achievement, Obamacare, a design-to-fail product when he knew that his name would be on it forever and always. Well, I'll tell you why, and there is a reason. All of that and more today. Before we get to that, let's go ahead and hear from our two sponsors of the day. Hey, if you've listened to this show for any length of time, you know I love to cook. And my go-to source for spices, seasoning, sauces, and information is Chef Keith Snow's site, HarvestEating.com. Give Chef Keith a try, and you'll see why I use his products at least a few times every single week in my own kitchen. You can learn more at HarvestEating.com. Bob Wells Nursery has become my go-to for fruit trees, nut trees, and hard-to-find edibles. Their customer service is second to none, and they even provide a 10% discount for all MSB members. Check them out at BobWellsNursery.com today. Next up, let's take a look at the year that was the episode, the year 1867. Alex Shrug has three for us today at TSP Wiki. We have Alaska going, going, sold. We have wage slaves on the Grange. And we have on the beautiful Blue Danube in 2001. And in other news, Marx publishes Das Kapital, Volume 1. It covers the laws of capitalism, when where money comes from, and how socialism grows from there. It's the epitome of a 19th century economic theory. I wish it would have stayed in the 19th century. Yeah, me too, Alex. Uh, the reinforced concrete process is patented. A French gardener is tired of clay pots that crumble and break. So he reinforces concrete using iron mesh. Thus, reinforced concre concrete construction is born. That's a big leap in technology, guys. Huge. George Westinghouse invents the railway air brake. Yes, that Westinghouse. Currently, train brakemen hop from car to car to manually apply the brakes. After witnessing a train wreck, Westinghouse realizes the compressed air could be used to operate the brake mechanism. The same train wreck will change standards for passenger cars making them out of iron rather than wood and securing heavy items inside. So of the three main ones, let's read Alaska, going, going, sold. Uh, 
The pocketbooks of the American taxpayers are now $7.2 million lighter, around $120 million in today's dollars. Russia has sold Alaska to the United States of America. Negotiations began and ended rather quickly after an assassination attempt on Tsar Alexander II was thwarted. President Andrew Johnson set a delegation to Russia in friendship to express joy that Alexander's near-death experience was not as near as the assassin had hoped. Having recently lost President Lincoln to assassination, the point was clearly made. The act of empathy has prompted the Russians to open negotiations to sell Alaska to the U.S. After all, Russia isn't getting much income from the region. It cannot effectively defend it, and it doesn't want to get into a war with the U.S. anyway. So they're willing to let go for a song. The main negotiator is Washington, D.C. is Secretary of State William Seward. Seward offers $5 million, and they eventually settle on $7.2 million. The treaty is signed. The Congress approves it. In less than 40 days, the USA has expanded its landmass by one-fifth. Watch your language. The kids are listening. Manifest Destiny, and I'm sorry, my take by Alex Shrugged, Manifest Destiny and Seward had declared the USA would conquer all of the northern continent from east to west and north to south. Currently a little behind on that project. The prediction might have motivated the Russians to sell Alaska while everyone was still in a good mood. Although it was a good deal in those days, Alaska's potential was unknown. To most people, it seemed like a frozen wasteland. They called Alaska Seward's Folly or Seward's Icebox and other derisive labels. But no one had really surveyed the region for its, mash, for its potential resources. Then gold was found, and oil. In the 20th century, as the Cold War progressed, it became part of early warning system where massive radar disks watched for, for an imminent strike from Soviet intercontinental ballistic missiles. It was a terrifying first grade as a first grade boy uh, to go through nuclear strike drills in school. Air raid sirens would wail and we would crawl under our desks and wait for it to be all clear or something else as the joke went, sit down, hands behind your head, bend over and kiss your backside goodbye. Imagine how much worse that would have been if the Soviet Union was part of the North American continent. I shudder to think. Check out the movie Ice Station Zebra. 1968 for a clue. It could be argued that Seward saved the USA from thermonuclear war before the nuclear bomb was ever imagined. Yeah, I'm not going to dig into the history here. I want to kind of just talk about something we talked about recently with 9-11, how, you know, we're coming up on 9-11 again very soon, and how this year in ninth grade history in, in, in high school, Freshman high schoolers will be studying 9-11 as a historical thing that happened. This will be the first group of school children in high school to study 9-11 as a historical event that weren't alive when it happened. And I think as we age, sometimes, especially when we're in you know what you'd call middle age, like 40s, 50s, early 60s, we forget that we're older than we think we are, I guess is a way to put it. Um, what I mean by that is... It it misses something for me that when I'm talking to a 25-year-old, 26-year-old person, I don't look at that person really like a kid that much, other than I kind of sort of do because my son's 27. When, when somebody hits your son's age, they're kind of a kid to you no matter how old they are. But I, I don't talk to a 26-year-old like I'm talking to an 8-year-old. right? I talk to them like an equal, on the level, so to speak. right? So we're on the level with each other. And with that, you kind of expect that, well, I might know some things you don't, but our experiences are largely similar. And at least I would expect that your, your situation would be that your experience level would be similar to what mine was when I was 25, 26 years old. But then I realized that those kids never hid under their desk for a nuclear strike drill. 
That 27-year-old of today never experienced that. You don't know anything about that. Alex is a bit older than me. I'm guessing from some of the like little things that I've seen dribbled in here that Alex is about 10 years older than me, but we share that in common. And it's really my generation you know, that was the last to experience that. And as we go forward, like you can't, like Alex tries it here, and I'm trying it now, you can't explain to somebody what that was like for a child when that somebody was a child but yet never experienced it as a child. To, to know what it's like to actually think this could happen. For it to be real. In the early 80s, I think it was like 82, 83, somewhere in there, maybe 81, somewhere around there, there was a two-night miniseries called The Day After. It was about nuclear war. I was in second or third grade. I know that because it was before I managed to get myself kicked out of Catholic school the first time. And... Um, Yes, twice I got kicked out. They sent me back. I got kicked out again. I didn't like it there. Anyway, um, first time wasn't really intentional. Second time was. Anyway, I remember the next day, all the kids could talk about is, what if this happens? What if this happens? What if this happens to us? The first part is everything leading up to the missiles launching. So the next day, that wasn't. But the second one was after the impact, the day after. It was... Uh, It was an interesting time to be alive. And I think for us that lived through it, our concern for the future might be greater than those that didn't. We know how bad it can almost get. And keep that in mind because at times it's been really bad right here at home. We'll talk about that toward the close today. Anyway, before we get into uh, – or no, we're done. We did the we did the sponsor seminars. Let's go ahead and uh, – Get into our first question for an expert council member. I have a question for Erica Strauss about botulism. The person wants to know, tell us everything we need to know about botulism. So, Erica, go ahead and take it away. Hello, TSP. Erica here calling in this week to answer Alan's question on botulism. Alan wants to know all there is to know about botulism and has a specific question about the botulism risk from honey in tea. Okay, well, many listeners may remember that I did a segment back in July 2015 on what home canners need to know about botulism. It's episode 1603, if you missed it, and I think that segment does cover the basics on botulism, but let me just do a quick review here. Okay, botulism is a very rare but very damaging and potentially fatal illness caused by a specific toxin, the botulinum toxin. When people are suffering from botulism, they are said to be intoxicated, that is, affected by the toxin. Now, the botulinum toxin itself is made by a bacterium called Clostridium botulinum. And when I say C. botulinum makes this toxin, you can think of this as sort of the horrible, no good, terrifying equivalent of, say, the beneficial lactobacillus bacterium making lactic acid or yeast making alcohol. But I'll get back to Clostridium botulinum in just a second. 
the botulinum toxin, the thing that actually causes botulism, is an incredibly powerful neurotoxin. And even tiny quantities of this pure toxin can be fatal. When someone contracts botulism, their nerves and muscles undergo a kind of progressive paralysis. Typically, the paralysis starts at the top of the body and works its way down. So often, after some general GI disturbances, the first sign of botulism intoxication is a uh, droopy eyes, double vision, facial weakness, or difficulty swallowing. Um, and that's because because this paralysis sort of happens from top down. The first muscles that are really noticeably affected are the muscles that control the eyes, the face, the mouth, that kind of thing. And as a quick aside about facial paralysis, the injectable Botox is, in fact, the botulinum toxin. It's the same thing. It's just diluted down to levels that allow doctors and doctor-like people to strategically paralyze just certain muscles in your face. And there are some medical uses for Botox, but primarily it's used as a cosmetic injectable designed to relax, which is to say temporarily paralyze the muscles of the face to get rid of wrinkles. You know, I'm a regular woman with regular woman vanities, but I guess I'm a bit too conservative when it comes to the world's deadliest neurotoxin because for the life of me, I cannot understand why anyone would want to voluntarily shove any botulinum toxin in their face. But hey, that's just me. Okay, back to our review of botulism. With fast and effective medical care, most cases of botulism are not fatal, but long-term nerve and muscle damage and paralysis are common. So we can all agree that botulism sucks and we just really don't ever want to mess around with it. So let's talk a little bit now about the bacterium behind all this scary stuff. Mr. Clostridium botulinum, CBOT, we'll call him. CBOT is anaerobic. He hates oxygen, can't stand the stuff, can't live in it. He is spore forming. That means he throws off sort of spores. You can think of it like seeds, like bacterium seeds. And he's rod shaped. He looks kind of like an eraser. He lives pretty much anywhere that he can reliably get away from oxygen and get his other needs met. C. botulinum bacteria is found in marine sediments, in animal intestinal tracts, um, in the stuff that comes out of animal intestinal tracts. We could call it dung to be gentle. Um, It's found in damp, moist soils, marine soils. And C. botulinum, should his survival as a vegetative bacterium be threatened, he just turns himself into a spore. As a spore, there is almost nothing that can destroy C. botulinum. When C. bot sporulates, it's a bit like bacterium C. bot just locks himself into his underground doomsday bunker and hibernates until his little botulinum apocalypse passes. No exaggeration, some C. botulinum spores are thought to remain viable for thousands of years. So it's a pretty well-stocked bunker. Because these spores are pretty much indestructible and because they last so long and because they are absolutely ubiquitous in soil, you should just assume that anywhere there could be dust, there could be botulism spores. That's just all there is to it. You should assume wild yeasts are floating around your house, and you should assume there are seabot spores just hanging out in the soil that's still clinging to the garlic on your counter or in the dust that's settled to the bottom of your carpet. But I don't want this to freak anyone out because the spore does not hurt you. Repeat after me. The spore does not hurt you. The bacterium does not hurt you. Only the toxin hurts you. And it takes a very specific set of circumstances to get from spore to toxin. Now, I do want to remind all you guys, I'm not a microbiologist. I'm just a canner who likes to read really nerdy PubMed articles. So while I believe with all my heart that I am about to give you a very 
accurate picture of the lifestyle of the C. botulinum bacterium. If there are any professional microbiologists in the audience listening, and if I get any details wrong, please do correct me in the comment section. I'm always trying to refine my own understanding of botulism and the bacterium that causes it and my ability to explain it to folks. So uh, happy to be corrected if there's any uh, actual botulism microbiologists out there. So that said, here's how you get the toxin. The spore C. botulinum must find himself in a hospitable environment before he will kind of reanimate to that bacterial form. Basically, he's not coming out of his bunker until he knows he's got the all clear. And that means he must be in an oxygen-free environment. He must have a level of moisture that uh, is beneficial to his uh, success as a bacteria. He must have a food source. The environment can't be too acidic, and the temperature must be at least 3 degrees Celsius. That's 37 degrees Fahrenheit or warmer. If any of these things, oxygen, moisture, food, acidity, or temperature are not C. botulinum friendly, the spore just stays a spore. And remember, as a spore, he cannot hurt you. There is one kind of tragic exception to this that I'll cover at the end of my segment. But just for you, listeners, the spore does not hurt you. So all food preservation methods that involve removing oxygen from foods, and there are many because removing oxygen from foods is a really good way to extend the lifespan of those foods, um, including canning, dry packing, uh, covering things in oil. All these methods have to contain certain safety measures that ensure that potential botulinum spores will stay in their spore form. And that is why water bath canned foods must be high acid and dry packed rice has to be very low moisture and why leaving garlic in oil at room temperature is just kind of asking for trouble. So let's say that the C. botulinum spore does reanimate. Well, you know, we're still not to the toxin stage. At this point, the vegetative botulism bacterium begins to grow. As a bacterium, Clostridium botulinum starts eating and reproducing. And eventually he gets to the point where he and his family have outstripped the resources of their neighborhood. They've come out of the bunker, they've set up shop, they've eaten all the deer, they've fished out the lake, they've burned down all the trees for firewood. This is an analogy, obviously, guys. So the C. botulinum family again faces Tio Tawaki. So what do they do? Well, they go back in their bunker. Yep, at this point, the bacterium sporulate. They turn into those spores. And it's during this end-of-life sporulation process that Clostridium botulinum creates the botulinum toxin that causes botulism. So that's what it takes to get from spore to toxin. And Alan, of course, asks the million-dollar question, how long does that take? How long does it take to go from spores to toxin? Well, this is a question with uh, only one answer, and I think Jack will like this. It depends. There's just too many variables to possibly know. Low temperature, low moisture, high acidity, all reduce the likelihood of botulism growth. Approved methods of food preservation, including proper acidification and processing times, for example, for canned goods, are designed to ensure that you're always firmly on the side of better safe than sorry. Because when it comes to botulism, really better safe than sorry, guys. Now, Alan does have one specific question here. He says, since the botulism spore itself is in honey naturally, and I like to mix honey with my teas, can I safely mix the honey tea and then refrigerate to drink it cooled in the next day or two without the bacteria spores waking up and producing botulism toxin. 
Well, Alan, what you've described here seems perfectly safe to me. First of all, tea itself is fairly acidic. Black tea has an acidity of about 4.9, for example. And while that wouldn't be good enough for canned food that you'd be keeping on the shelf for a long time, uh, for what you're describing, it seems like a very nice little sort of safety margin. Um, second, you're not creating a purely oxygen-free environment with your tea. This is not like a sealed container. There is going to be some dissolved oxygen in that tea. And third, you're keeping your tea chilled. Fourth, you are drinking your tea within a couple of days of making it. And all these things add up to sort of multiple layers of protection against the possibility of botulism growth. And look, I'm very conservative on this stuff, guys. I always urge people to err on the side of caution in food preservation. But Alan, you're not going to get botulism from your tea. That's just not going to happen. With what you've described to me, I would say that your your process is very safe. I don't think I've ever, I've never heard of anyone getting botulism from anything like what you have just described with all those multiple layers of safety. You know, a, a moderately low acid environment, chilled and used within a few days. This is a very safe process, what you're describing. Now, I do want to clarify that best practices are, of course, to refrigerate your tea very promptly as soon as practical and keep it chilled. Um, and if you're extra concerned, just double check to make sure your fridge is set to 37 degrees or below. Now, I suspect someone out there is thinking, but what about the infants and the honey? Alan asked about the honey. If the spores are in the honey, and they are, and the honey can hurt babies, then why can't the spores hurt us? Well, the reason infants are particularly susceptible to botulism, so susceptible, in fact, that there's a whole category of the disease called infant botulism, is because their digestive tract isn't strongly acidic like older children and adults. The lower acidity of the infant digestive tract can allow ingested spores, spores that were maybe in honey or sadly just spores from dirt in the yard or dust in the house, to germinate after ingestion. Um, so once those spores germinate inside the infant's body, there is the potential for uh, that kind of botulism poisoning to happen. So that's the deal with that. And it's one of the reasons why infant botulism is, of course, so scary and tragic. There's, there's not as much you can do to prevent against it as compared to foodborne botulism through things like canning. So I hope I haven't scared anyone off here. Um, you know, again, the key with botulism is just know what you're up against, know how to control it, and take those proper precautions in your food preservation. Uh, and then in, you're going to be fine. I mean, also, I'd just like to leave you guys with this. Botulism is extremely rare. It's extremely rare. Very, very rare. The chance that you will ever get botulism, know anyone who gets botulism, even hear of someone in your community getting botulism, are minuscule. And as long as we all kind of stick to the basics with our food preservation safety, we're all going to help keep it that way. So uh, as always, if you have any questions, just drop a line in the comments for today's show. I'll do my best to answer them. And until next time, guys, this has been Erica for the Expert Council. Thank you all for your great questions, community. Thank you, Jack, for all you do. And I will chat with you guys in a couple of weeks. So she says it's rare. Let's let's drive home how rare it is. In the United States, there's an average of 145 cases reported each year. That's not all of them being fatal either, by the way, just as 145 cases of people having botulism. That might even seem like a lot when, like, there's been 14 cases of Zika. There's an epidemic. Well, the 14 cases of Zika is not an epidemic. Relax, all right? So 145 out of the United States. To put it in perspective, a hell of a lot more people won a million-dollar-plus lottery last year, okay? But 
Of these, 145, 65% are the dreaded infant botulism, which has nothing to do with food, okay? So now we come down by 65%, and then another 20% are wound-based botulism, so a wound that somehow gets contaminated with botulism. Only 15% of 145 average cases of botulism a year in the United States are related to food, 15%. 15% of 145 is like 20, 21, 22, somewhere in there. 21 and change. 2175, I guess, if kind of in my head, yeah? Right? Check it. I'm not sure. But yeah, 20, call it 22. 20, 22 people a year get botulism from food in the United States. The United States has a population of about 330 million. I can't do the math on that in my head, guys. You have to do it for yourself. You want to figure out what the percentage of people in the United States affected with foodborne botulism is. It's 22 out of 330 million. It's a lot of decimal points, and to me, it's it, it's ridiculous to even worry about. You are more likely to slip and kill yourself in a bathtub, okay, than you are to die of foodborne botulism. So. Anyway, I just wanted to kind of reinforce what Erica said there. Moving on, we have another question. This one here for Tim Glantz on water buffaloes. I have actually a pretty fond memory of water buffaloes myself. Yeah, they're not the big animals that the kids lead around in the swamps in India. No, it's a different thing. Tim, tell us all about military water buffaloes. Hey everybody there, Tim Glantz here with Old Grouch and Military Surplus with an expert panel answer. And uh, before that, a bit of an apology to Jack and all the listeners out there. Been slacking a bit on my answers. I'm going to get caught back up here now. Uh, had some health issues with the family, with uh, taking care of family members. And between that and taking care of everything at the store to make sure we didn't get too far behind. And then catching up, uh, I've been slacking on some of my other stuff. But catching up now, so if you've sent an answer and I've gotten it and... Uh, you haven't seen it yet. Uh, it will be uh, coming up here very shortly. I hope to catch them all up over the weekend. But anyway, uh, here's a question from Matt in Ohio about uh, Army water buffaloes. And some of you are probably saying, what in the world does the Army have water buffaloes for? Well, a water buffalo is the uh, military nickname, because we always give things colorful nicknames, for the M149 trailer, which is a trailer, single axle trailer, with a 400-gallon water tank on it. It's used for hauling polluble water out in the field and then it has uh, four spigots up front and one in the back and troops can go up and you can fill your canteen, fill a five-gallon can, uh, brush your teeth, do everything else and, and then when it gets near empty somebody goes off from supply and goes up to the water point and fills it up again and brings back more water. And Matt was up at his daughter's graduation from a ROTC cadet leadership course and Tell her congratulations, by the way. Looks like she's on her way to being a new second lieutenant very shortly here. Uh, he saw some of the old water buffaloes and remembered them from when he was in the Army and started thinking about would that be a good option for the homestead. Uh, it is very handy to have a way to carry water around on a trailer on the homestead. That said, a water buffalo is probably not the best way to go about it. Uh, and I'll tell you why. Number one, these were designed to be towed behind a deuce and a half or a five ton. The height of the hitch, the height of the chassis, and the fact that they have air brakes uh, are all factors here. Uh, the biggest one being air over hydraulic brakes. Unless your tow vehicle has air brakes and glad hat fittings, you will not have brakes. 
Now empty, that trailer weighs about 3,000 pounds. 400 gallons of water is another 3,360 pounds, plus or minus. So full, you're at 6,300 pounds on a trailer with no brakes. And on top of that, there are no baffles in those tanks because a baffle tank is harder to keep sanitary. So once that uh, tank is not 100% full, that water sloshes. If you've ever had the panic stop, uh, a trailer with a tank or a truck with a tank and felt the way that liquid will push you around, uh, you can easily, easily get yourself in trouble trying to tow one of these at any speed on the road uh, without brakes. Now, yes, you can retrofit air over hydraulic brakes to be electric over hydraulic. going to cost you about $600. Uh, on top of that, some of the downsides, it uses deuce and a half wheels and tires with the 920 tube tires with the lock ring wheel. There are a pain to change a tire on. I'm sure Jack remembers being out there with the duckbell hammer and the tire tools changing those. And there also can be dangerous. If you have any cracks or you don't get that seated, they can explode when they're inflated. For that reason, most of your tire shops anymore won't even work on them for liability reasons. You really have to hunt. So if you have a flat tire, you're either going to have to buy all the tire tools and sweat and do that yourself, or you're going to pay a pretty good penny. Plus, uh, 920 tires are big. Big tires aren't cheap. So you could do the exact same thing in a more practical scale, taking 275-gallon plastic totes with the aluminum cage around them like we see everywhere and mounting them on a more suitable trailer. I've actually got a setup like this. I've got a military surplus three-quarter ton trailer. It's an M101A2. And I've got one of those 275-gallon totes mounted on it. And then uh, off the pipe fitting, I've got a uh, pipe running off. And one side goes to a two-inch. I can hook a big hose to. One side goes to a side that wise off, and it's got two regular spigots. Uh, it's not 400 gallons, but it's 275, which is more manageable for me anyway with what I tow with. Uh, that trailer has surge brakes, so I actually have brakes, uh, and it's uh, a much more manageable size and it's practical. It's got regular size wheels and tires. Everything is so much easier to manage. And if you really wanted 400 gallons, I would suggest just go buy a civilian double axle trailer with brakes and put two of those 275 gallon totes on it, and then you get 550 gallons. And you're still going to have a safer, more manageable uh more sustainable in the terms of parts, uh, product, and you'll be able to do it cheaper than what a surplus deuce and a half sells for. Uh, if you do, uh, if your heart's really set on a deuce and a half, the things I will tell you is don't buy a fiberglass tank one, uh, buy a stainless tank one. They made both. It, it never fails that eventually fittings and plugs on the fiberglass ones get stripped and then they're trash. Uh, when you buy a stainless one, inspect it. Big thing, give it the sniff test. Make sure there's never been any kind of fuel in them. One of the biggest reasons these surplus, these trailers get turned into surplus is some moron tries to haul fuel in them. Once that's done, you'll never get all that fuel out of there. I don't care what you do to it, how you clean it. You'll never get it out to where uh, anybody that uh, manages uh, health stuff will tell you it's safe enough to call it potable water. Uh, and when you're getting one of these... Uh, you never really know what's been in it, uh, but you can do the sniff test for fuel, and you you will usually smell the fuel if it's been in there. 
whatever you do get, uh, look online for instructions on how to clean it. Uh, it involves bleach in a specific formula for a specific amount of time. Uh, make sure you sanitize it before you put any water you want to use in it uh, because uh, nasty stuff can grow when there's just a little bit of water left in them and they're left to sit. So uh, I hope that helps. Uh, you're, you're thinking in the right way about having uh, water to be able to uh, you know, move with you or move around the homestead or anything else. But uh, I think you can do better by building your own using the totes and a different trailer chassis uh, than you can with the Water Buffalo pre-made for, for a number of reasons. Unless you happen to already own a deuce and a half, in which case I'd say go for the Water Buffalo. But uh, for 99% of the people, you're far better off uh, putting one of those totes on the back of a trailer. Hope that helps. Hope that gets everybody a little bit thinking on that. And uh hope everybody has a great day. And uh, I want to tell everybody also right now for about the next couple weeks, I do have a sale going. Uh, this probably uh, might make you think of some of your old days in the Army right now. I stumbled upon a really good deal on a whole bunch of the old school Army TA-50 Alice gear. And we're running the sale right now on full setups that have suspenders, pistol belt, two M16 mag pouches, a canteen cover, and a brand new canteen for $15.95. Hope to keep that up going for the next few weeks or until I start running out of components of them. Uh, but we do have that going for anybody that uh, wants that kind of gear for for their own use, uh, for extras, for handout gear, for anything like that. It's, it's good, durable gear. It's not the sexiest, newest stuff out there, but it's uh, very practical and very proven. Now, if you're listening to this podcast uh, three months from now, six months from now, don't call me and say, hey, where is that? I can't find it. Uh, look at the date on this podcast because this is definitely going to be a temporary uh, thing for us. So hope everybody has a great day. Hope everybody uh, keeps it safe out there. And uh, thanks, as always, for listening. Thanks, always, Jack, for the great podcast and let me be a part of it. So uh, so great stuff from Tim. I, yeah, I do remember the water buffalo. And the reason I have fond memories of it is I served in places like Fort Benning, Georgia, and um, and uh, Fort Clayton, Panama, and the middle of nowhere, Honduras, and it's really hot there. So when you look and you see that thing coming, you know more water is coming, and it makes you very, very happy because you have water to drink and to dump on your head and to brush your teeth with. Um, if you've never walked to a plywood table uh, with a canteen and dumped water from your canteen into a canteen cup and brushed your teeth and shaved that way, I think your your view on life is different than if you have. And some of you are going, yeah, I remember doing that. Um, yeah, that was uh, an interesting time in my life. And I, I do look back fondly on it. And uh, I think the water buffalo is a great piece of military gear uh, for the military. It's, it's, it's not great for civilians unless if you owned a deuce and a half, then it would work. I think you'd make beautiful sense if you owned a deuce and a half. Um, after working on them for a lot of my life, I don't know that I'd ever want one, um, maybe a, five, uh, a 900 series five ton. Um, but, um, I'm with Tim. I think a good quality civilian trailer with good trailer brakes on it and an IBC or two is a much more, uh, sustainable thing. And you also have, you know, two is one, one is none. Um, if you mount IBCs up on a trailer, then if you decide you want to do something else with that trailer, you can just you know hold it on there basically with with ratchet straps and you can take the IBC off and do something else with the trailer. If you buy a water buffalo, that's all that it'll ever be. It's a big ass water tank on wheels. And guys, just never forget, never forget. It's about eight point three pounds to the gallon, 
And it adds up really, really fast when you start putting water into a load-bearing situation. So, anyway, next question I have is for Mike and Sue LaPriest. It's a follow-up on something I already talked about. It's maximizing the edge between self-directed learning and the government school system when homeschooling can't be something that you can do. Mike and Sue, take it away. This is Michael and Sue LaPriest with HaloBySue.com, designing the life you'd love to live for the expert counsel. Hey Jack and TSP community, we're glad to be sharing the opportunity of homeschooling with you and hope our 10 minutes changes hearts and minds. Here's today's question from Dylan that Jack talked about in episode 1849. How do I maximize the edge interaction between government schools and self-directed learning? Details, my wife and I will be starting a family this year and determined that homeschooling is not an option for us. was wondering how to get the best out of government schools while instilling self-directed learning attitude at home. Well, Dylan, our first suggestion is the same as Jack's. you got to figure it out. We accomplished the same things we set out to do, and I know you and your wife can figure this out in the next nine or more months before your little person shows up. We understand that it's easier to go with what everyone else is doing and that the financial toll in this economy of a single working parent can be huge, but we hope today that our story will help you figure out what your heart's desire is and steps to making homeschooling possible. Many people think of school as a choice between government school, private school, or homeschool. We always say that homeschooling is a lifestyle choice. It will affect all of your decisions moving forward. One of our main goals for homeschooling is to diminish the demand of the state on our lives and to live in freedom as much as we can. I didn't know there was a choice and enjoyed most of school growing up. It's just the way it was. Sue, on the other hand, had a high-adventure mom who unintentionally made school excruciatingly boring, and Sue wanted those adventures for our kids without the boredom. That took some serious planning and a lot of sacrifice, but seven kids and 28 years later were harvesting the blessings of that choice. Dylan, and I'm sure many of you, want to know about the interactive edge, and we just want to say that there's a difference in learning at home and government school is where home is a 10 foot by 10 foot slab style patio with four edges of 40 feet and government school is a brick patio with eight by three inch bricks that gives you in excess of 500 feet of edge. When your kid goes to your school, your 40 feet of edge gets swallowed up by their 500 plus feet. Does that sound like interactive to you? And ask yourself, is government school necessary to my child's development? Government school grows more intrusive by the day, and why wouldn't they? Most people participate in a failed system because they don't think about it. It's just easier. It's what everyone else is doing, and so the educational bureaucrats feel free to create an ever-increasing and demanding set of rules and hoops for parents to jump through. You have to medicate your kid. You have to vaccinate your kid. You have to show up on time, do the work that we value, learn what we think is important, and most importantly, be a good citizen of the state. This system leads us to believe that our choices are Hillary and Trump. Is that what you want for your kid's future? It's about following your heart for your kid's future. I worked with a woman who took her eight weeks off from maternity leave when she had her second child, and the first few weeks she was back, she cried and cried, saying she wished she could stay home with her kids. Her husband made more money than I did, and I assured her that they could do it. A week or so later, she showed up with a brand new excursion and told me, I can't drive a car that's more than three years old. We know for most of you the decision is about much more basic living expenses, 
but you can figure that out. You have to decide what priority you will place on your children's freedom and how you choose to empower them for their future. Sue and I are both from families of seven kids, and we had stay-at-home moms who were great at that job. We loved our childhood, and before we ever got married, agreed that we wanted our kids to have that experience. We knew that it meant giving up some things. Which didn't always make it easy, and there were times I worked waiting tables at night or babysitting, or Michael worked a second job after work. When I first got pregnant, we hadn't planned ahead, and were in the habit of spending everything we made. We were having a blast doing fun stuff in and around Boston. Our expensive apartment with a river view outside of Boston turned into the first floor of a Queen Anne in Providence that was super cheap because we agreed to help the owner with renovations. The completed upstairs rented for eleven hundred dollars in nineteen eighty seven, and we were paying three hundred dollars for our two thousand square foot ha- place, while refinishing horsehair walls, scraping miles of beadboard, and freezing as the wind came in the yet to be replaced windows. The good news was because it was within walking distance to church, the grocery store, and the library, we could sell one of our cars. Sharing a car wasn't good news to me at the time. Yet for most of our 29 years since, then we have been sharing a car and we're still married. It wasn't just the car. Sue didn't know how to cook and there wasn't going out money. Our best meal of the week was at my parents' house where we also did our laundry. We started to budget and learn how to cook, which could have been learned beforehand and would have made life much easier. This is also when Sue learned some awesome sewing skills with piles and piles of free fabric that she got from my brother-in-law who worked at a mill and it was this year that I learned how to build some shelves. Lots of firsts out of necessity, but this year of learning set us up for an awesome journey of learning and making things work. However, New England was expensive and the job market was flat. On a business trip back to Houston, we went and toured a new home subdivision and saw 2,400 square foot homes for $90,000. And at the time, we had friends in Rhode Island who were super excited about their 900 square foot house with a potential patio close-in for 120 square feet more, it was only $90,000. We couldn't figure it out how that was going to work, so we loaded up a U-Haul and headed back to Texas. Mike was angry because the dream of living downtown Boston was forever in the rearview mirror, but I was thrilled that we were heading back to the land of sunshine and rain. There was the added benefit of living near my parents, who have always been there to help us watch kids and have adventure. I also want to say that we've never been to Disney. For some people, that's tragic, but it's never been in our budget. 90% of our vacations have been intense. I mean, intense. Camping out, learning things with friends in our homeschool family scout program, and we still go camping with friends. One year, we pulled off 55 nights of camping, some 10 days long at campgrounds that are $10 a night. We've made this part of our adventure and learned a lot of fun skills and along the way have met some very interesting characters willing to chat and share their craft. So you have to adjust your mindset when it comes to what's vacation, what's education, what's dinner. What do I want my life to look like at a foundational level, and how do I adjust my expectations and enjoy the journey I've chosen? I have to tell you, there were times I was very angry about not having what I perceived everyone else had, but by the time I reached 40, those people who seemed to have everything also had few kids, something I really liked, and they were getting divorced, something I didn't want to be part of. It was then this whole homeschool experience started becoming real to me. Here's what we see happening with younger families. Our current group of homeschool families include many young moms who grew up in the homeschool homestead life, and while they went 
to the big city and got the good job. When that baby showed up, they headed back to their roots. But then there are other young families that moved to the country to try and find some freedom that didn't even think about homeschooling. And they drop their kids off at school that first day of kindergarten with a vague sense that homeschooling is out there. We've heard a number of stories recently of that first few days and weeks of school being so traumatic for the kid whose parents are freedom seekers, wanting their kid to explore the acres or yard and have given their kid lots of freedom for those first five years. Then they're suddenly confronted by a massive loss of freedom and we're talking half a day at kindergarten here. Simple things you might not even think would be considered wrong, but are freedom robbers and unhealthy. Remember, this is five-year-olds, and you have to stay seated at a desk for long stretches of time. You're not, you aren't allowed to sit quietly anywhere in the room. You have to be at the desk. Why do we think that's okay? One young mom was told by the school that she had, they had never seen a child as bad as hers. He was disruptive and unruly. His dastardly crying... He wanted to sit quietly on the floor under his desk instead of in the seat. So then these families had to scramble to rearrange their life to bring their kid home, which they did because their desire for personal freedom extended to wanting to give their children that same freedom. What if they'd understood this before they had kids? When you give your kid to the government school for programming, you're going to end up with a government program kid. Learned compliance is in the benefit of the state. There is no benign stage of development. From the time a baby is born, there are key things that nurture and encourage healthy growth. If your child isn't compliant, they need to be medicated. They must have all the vaccinations, because we said so. Then, your child moves through middle school, and remember, only 60% of them make it through high school. And then what? Now our government is telling us they should all go to college. What? Children want to be held, nurtured, and listened to. Family is a natural design for these things to happen in the best and most frequent ways. Adults are no different, but we're trained to believe that success is something to be attained, not something that we live every day with our family. It goes back to trading time for dollars. The same woman who couldn't stay home because she couldn't possibly drive a car that was more than three years old works long hours, day in and day out, so she can take that week-long trip to Disney with her kids. You want to know the funny part? Disney has child care services so her and her husband can enjoy the park without their kids part of the time. So what's your why? Why do you want kids? Why do you believe that self-directed learning is a good idea but government school is your first choice? Well thanks again Jack for this moment to share our ideas on homeschooling. I'd like to leave everyone this thought from Gandhi. Civil disobedience becomes a sacred duty when the state has become lawless or corrupt. And a citizen who barters with such a state shares in its corruption and lawlessness. For me, what you're imagining as an interactive edge is a bulldozer of the state that doesn't want you to have your own patio. This has been Michael and Sue Laprise with HaloBySue.com, designing the life you'd love to live. Yeah, indeed. I, I just want to be fair to people out there that, that do have their children still in government school and are doing their best with that interactive edge that for many people, it's not a first choice. It's, it's a distant second choice, but the circumstances in their lives kind of dictate that. And uh, there are many people who I think it actually would be financially responsible for them to go to a one-income family, so to speak, in certain situations, if they're already, you know, buku in debt, and by 
let's say, working two jobs for another three, four years, and your children can then come out of school if it's not working for them, you know, by second, third grade. I think if there is a point in time where public school is relatively benign, it's in those years, it's it's not the most horrible thing in the world for a kid to be able to sit still for 30 minutes. It, it really isn't. Um, because it helps them develop focus. Now, when when they're not quite as still as they want and they want to start putting meds in your kid, I'll tell you what. I'll tell you what. It never came up with us, with our son, had it. Uh, I will shove it down your throat before you put it in my kid's mouth. That's how I feel about that. Keep your kids off this dope, people. It's dope. It's dope. It's freaking meth, okay? That's what they're giving these kids. They're giving the meth. Now, it's a Friday. I don't want to get all jazzed up, but I just wanted to kind of throw that in there. Next question I have is for Stephen Harris, and it's on insulating a chest freezer, uh, and not just when the power's out. Steve, take it away. Hi, this is Steve Harris for the expert panel calling in to answer your question. I have a really good one that is simple, but there's lots of details involved, and it's from Michael. And he says, wouldn't it make sense to insulate your chest freezer all the time? I'd almost didn't send this because it's a bit of a duh question, but I was wondering why you or Stephen H. advocate shrouding the chest freezer with blankets and sleeping bags during a power outage instead of just placing permanent insulation around it all the time. Maybe I'm missing something, but hey, by the way, I packed my chest freezer with about 60 bottles of water and unplugged it for three days while preparing to move. Uh, the bottles of water were maybe 20% melted on the top and the outside and still solid on the bottom and uh, on the inside. This is a man who is a graduate of the Stephen Harris Refrigerator and Freezer class at Stephen1234.com. He did exactly what I advocate, and look how well it worked for him. Remember, when you put water into your freezer, it's going to keep it at 32 Fahrenheit, which is good, but a freezer's normal temperature is minus 5 Fahrenheit. But there's nothing wrong with keeping your freezer at 32 with melting ice. So let's cover a few basics basics before I go into the answer. First, you gotta get out of the, I gotta power my refrigerator and freezer! I gotta power them! You know, get out of this mode. Stop it! If the power fails and they stop running, the refrigerator can stay cold for about two days and there's maybe two days worth of food in it. Start eating your food. As I tell people when the power fails, first thing you do is you eat the ice cream out of the freezer. Yay, everyone has fun. So what's the problem if it's got two days of food and two days of cold? Not much need to power it. So let's say you have a full refrigerator or a full freezer with stuff that you don't want to go bad that's actually worth keeping So it, instead of just throwing it out. So you are having a barbecue with the neighbors. That's the other thing you do when the power fails. Take all the meat out of the refrigerator and freezer and have a barbecue. Let's say you hook up an inverter to your car, to your car and I explain how to do this in the How to Power Your House from Your Car class at Stephen1234.com. And you plug in either your refrigerator or 
your freezer for about one hour. You don't have to power the damn thing all the damn time, just about one hour each. And then you switch to the other one and power it for about an hour. So all the time the car is idling outside, too. You're not going to power your refrigerator or freezer ever off of your battery bank. It is always going to be off of an idling car or it's going to be off of a generator. Never off of a battery alone. It's not a damn lightsaber. So you switch this. Where was I? And so then... When when you are powering the refrigerators and freezers, they're naked. There's nothing around them. When you unplug the refrigerator and the freezer, you cover it all up. You cover your entire refrigerator and freezer with sleeping bags and blankets and spare fur from the dog and the cats. You insulate the whole thing. When you go to power it again from the vehicle or, or the generator, you take everything off of it. So it's naked. It's, it's in its normal configuration. Got it? Powering it, everything off. When you're not powering it, you insulate the hell out of it with sleeping bags and blankets. So Jack responded to Michael, and he, and he did a great job here. He says, okay, yay and yay and nay to your answer. First of all, one side of the chest freezer is hot. This is true when it's running. So you could insulate three sides and the top of the freezer, With that said, most people wouldn't do this just to the aesthetics alone. I'll CC Steve on this, but I don't know that the answer is much more complicated and the gain would not likely be that big. That all depends. Most good chest freezers that you buy new today, they are pretty efficient as they come. As Jack says, the big thing is do not cover up the hot side. To make cold, you have to make heat. And if the heat has no place to, to go, bad crap happens. So a refrigerator, a freezer and a refrigerator is a heat pump. It is pumping heat, thus making cold, from the inside of the box to the outside of the box. The outside used to be that metal grid you would see. Now they've, for aesthetics purposes, they've integrated that metal grid with the inside of the sheet metal, one of the sides. So you have a hot side. So if you went to Home Depot or Lowe's, you got pink or blue foam insulation, two inches thick, and you got some liquid nails. You could liquid nails two inches of foam all the way around the entire refrigerator uh, or freezer, let's say. The top, the front, the left, and then the right. And the back side is probably the hot side. It could vary on your unit. The left side could be the hot side. But just run it and feel it with your hand. You don't know what side's the hot side. You don't put any insulation on the outside of the freezer on the hot side. What you can do is you can open the freezer, and if, they say, the hot side's the left side, you can put two inches of foam insulation on the inside of the freezer on the hot side. That'll keep the heat from the outside of the hot side from coming in and heating up the inside of everything cool. So got it, and I hopefully I've explained it. If you don't understand it, listen to it twice or email me. I was looking at a small chest freezer the other day in Lowe's, and it's like, boy, these walls were really thick. They were two inches thick in it. And uh, a lot has been done to make the new refrigerators and freezers, the ones that are Energy Star compliant, and I think they all are. 
So they've really increased the efficiency of the compressors. The compressors are smaller, so they run more. They draw less power, but of course they run more, and they've increased the insulation. The other thing is maybe your freezer right now don't have walls that are, you know, two inches thick on it. So putting insulation around the outside of it might be a good idea to add the insulation. Uh, and what you do is you, like I said, you liquid nails it on. And if you're worried about the aesthetics, go get some exterior white latex paint and paint all the foam white and the same with the refrigerator uh, freezer white. So it doesn't look bad, but I tell you what, it would really, uh, adding two inches of foam would really improve a lot of different things. Now you got to think of cold in a refrigerator or freezer as ping pong balls. When you go to open up your your refrigerator, all the cold, all the ping pong balls falls out of it. And when you open up the top of a chest freezer, all the ping pong balls stay in it. If I wanted a crap hits the fan refrigerator, I said refrigerator, okay, that ran off of solar power. Of course, the only reason you have any solar power is because you've already invested in a good two to three months of food and water. And then what I do is I'd use one of these small, uh, new efficient chest freezers. I would go get myself a Johnson, Johnson controls controller. They're on Amazon and I will send a link to Jack. So he'll put it in the show notes for you. And, uh, the controllers for heating and cooling. Now all you do is you plug one end into the wall, the other end into the freezer. And then you put the thermostat for the unit on the inside of the freezer and you dial in, you punch in what it's digital, what temperature that you want. So, for example, if you took this freezer designed to go to minus 5 degrees, you set it at 40 degrees Fahrenheit, so it came on and went off and kept the whole thing at 40, which is the temperature of a regular refrigerator, you'd be doing yourself pretty good. Hey, get all your ping pong balls in one place. Or you could set it for 25 Fahrenheit, and you can have a bunch of water bottles in there, and then you got a thermal battery in there. Because what happens is when the water is freezing, it's actually releasing heat. It's releasing heat at 32 degrees Fahrenheit, going from 32 degrees liquid to 32 degrees solid, takes 140 BTUs per per pound of water. So it's going to be released that energy state, that energy, that energy. And so it'll take a while to freeze it, but once you freeze it, then you can just let the thing stay that way for a day or two. And it's your own thermal battery. So it's a great thing to do. I'm going to email Jack the link to the, to the controller. And if you want more stuff that I've done with Jack, as always, go to Stephen1234.com. Thanks, guys. Good stuff for Steve. I do have the uh, Johnson Controls thermostat in the uh, show notes, and it's a very good unit. It is exactly the same one that I've used to build my Keezer. What is a Keezer? A Keezer is a play on freezer and kegerator, and it's basically a great big giant chest freezer that has been converted to a kegerator so that I can run beer and mead and other things on draft. One of the things we've been doing with that thing a lot lately, and this is one of the reasons some of you guys might consider making one of these even if you're not a homebrewer, because you make a, like a, a small one out of like a little bitty one, like a small chest freezer, and you'd have like a secondary refrigerator, right? 
You can insulate it, except for the hot side. That was the first thing I thought of when I saw that question. Yeah, you do that on a hot side, you burn it up, right? So you could add insulation to it if you wanted to and make a very efficient refrigerator and maybe just use a single keg system. And you could make your own sparkling water. That's We have five gallons of sparkling water on hand all the time now. Uh, we just dedicated one of the taps to that in the kegerator, or the keyser is more accurate in the case of the one that I built. Uh, next question I have is for Doc Bones on dealing with um, heat issues in a car with your vehicle medical kits and the stuff that's in those medical kits. Hi, Joe Alton, MD here, also known as Dr. Bones of the survival medicine website doomandbloom.net, now with over 850 articles, videos, and podcasts on medical preparedness. I'm also the co-author, along with my lovely wife, Nurse Amy, of the brand new 700-page third edition of the Survival Medicine Handbook, The Essential Guide for When Medical Help is Not on the Way. And also, the Zika Virus Handbook, both topics you might want to know a little bit about. This week's question for the expert counsel comes from Rick from Virginia, who writes, Ye old Dr. Bones, man, you got that right. I'm sure that many of the TSP listeners have medical kits in each vehicle. I know I do. My question is, how does the heat inside of the vehicle in the hottest parts of the year and the cold in the coldest parts of the year affect our supplies, if at all? I'm not so much concerned about what the expiration date on the package says. I'm interested more in the effects on the ability of the product to do its job. I'm in particular wondering about Sealox and Quickclop products, both the impregnated gauze and the new injectors, and Halo chest seals, other brands of occlusive chest seals that use some kind of adhesive fare. Well, Rick, that is actually a pretty good question, and different materials will certainly degrade at different rates based upon the amount of heat or the amount of cold that they could be exposed to. Excessive heat, for example, will speed up the degradation of drugs, especially in ointment or liquid form, but also probably in pills or capsules. A drug stored at 90 degrees is likely to lose potency twice as fast as one stored at 50 degrees. You can expect antiseptic wipes like alcohol, BZK, betadine, things like that, to dry out more quickly, especially in hot weather. You should periodically open up a wipe or two to see how they're doing. And sometimes you're going to have to replace them. Now, I've heard reports that items made of rubber or certain synthetics, like you might see on a stethoscope or a SWAT tourniquet, for example, will become relatively brittle if left out in temperature extremes. That makes perfect sense to me, and you should consider having similar items made perhaps of different materials, different types of tourniquets, for example, in that circumstance. You specifically ask about sea locks and quick clot. Quick clot is heated to 140 to 155 degrees during the packaging process, and the company claims it can withstand high temperatures. Quick clock can also be stored in temperatures below freezing. Sealox is stable at moderately elevated pressures and temperatures, according to their site. And unfortunately, I couldn't find anything on cold for Sealox, but I would think it would be stable as long as it has stayed dry, even in cold temperatures. Of course, I'm talking about temperatures that you're likely to see in the normal winters or normal summers in the United States or even Canada. Chest seals, well, it's all in the adhesive. If you got a chest seal in its original sealed packaging, it should withstand reasonable highs and lows during a winter and summer without too much trouble. Of course, over the span of many years, some products may have to be replaced. You should always check them for elasticity, if they're meant to be, for adhesiveness, if they are meant to be adhesive. These are some things that you should check on from time to time. Sutures that are made of cat gut, 
which is actually not cat gut, but sheep and cow intestines, should be checked from time to time. You might have to waste one, open one up to see if the alcohol that it is contained in has stayed viable. If not, those sutures will become very brittle and not useful at all. This is Joe Alton, MD, that old Dr. Bones, wishing you the best of health in good times or bad. Thanks for listening. Hey, make an old man, that's me, very happy by following us on Twitter at Prepper Show, our YouTube channel at Dr. Bones Nurse Amy, and check out our podcast, The Survival Medicine Hour, on Blog Talk Radio, and of course at doomandbloom.net, and American Survival Radio, our current events podcast on americansurvivalradio.com. Thanks so much. All right, good stuff, and you know, great things to uh, to take into consideration there from Doc Bones. I think we always have to think about any gear that we keep in our car, what effects heat have on them. So appreciate that, Doc. Next question I have is from Michael Jordan on someone dealing with a, a whole bunch of stuff on the ground. I'm going to guess they're probably yellow jackets. They could be something else, but they're very, very angry, very upset, and a very big problem, and he wants them gone he doesn't want them gone via some sort of really toxic poison. So, Michael, take it away. Well, I'm Michael Jordan, the bee whisperer of a bee-friendly company out of Cheyenne, Wyoming here, taking your questions on bees, apiary management, and mead making. Well, this question comes from Phil from Alaska. He's building a house and was digging in some dirt, uncovered a large nest of flying bugs. He says, with spears in their butts. I'm not sure if they're wasps, hornets, or etc. But he knows they're not the hell honeybees that he was hoping for. And now that they are pissed, he used his tractor to scoop up the nest and move it to a spot where they wouldn't bother anyone. But that seemed to even make them more mad. He's been stung several times, and working on his property is now incredibly painful. The nest is over 10 feet from the front door, so it can't stay. He lives in rural Alaska, so there's no guy to take care of the problem. He is that guy that has to kill these bastards without drenching the ground with poison. He's he's weighted down a tarp and covered him to where he thinks they're coming out of the ground in efforts to suffocate them, but they're still flying around. Any help would be greatly appreciated. Thanks to you, Jack, for building a platform for these questions so they can be answered. Phil from Alaska. Well, uh, Phil, my man, you're screwed. No, I'm just kidding, man. I had to throw that in there because of my jealous streak that you're living in Alaska. I had one of my best adventures there back in the day. And I have to say, I love the fishing wheels. The fresh salmon wheels were the best. Um, and I make some of my best meads from the jackberries that grow there. So it's good on you, man. I just had to poke a little fun at you being in Alaska. So the stinging problem has to be taken care of in like three parts. But first, let's get safe. Let's make sure you have long sleeve shirts, uh, full pants. Uh, let's get covered up as much as we can. Heck, man, if you can't even pick up a bee jacket with a veil. That way, if you get into the nest next time, you won't have to worry about getting the crap stung out of you. I know it's like probably a one-time investment, but as you said, you are that guy, and you never know. You may be the next bee whisperer there in Alaska helping out your fellow frontiersmen with the problems 
and maybe even keep bees yourself at one time. So that might be an investment for you to keep safe. Now that we're being safe, the first part is putting up with the wasp traps. Put up with a lot of wasp traps. Put them out there. They're cheap, and they can be picked up in any hardware store or ordered online. This is going to get you collecting the bugs that are that are and, and get rid of the food source that's going back to their nest. That no food to the nest, the nest starves. So place around the working zones that you see them most in, keeping them about 20 feet from the spot where you think they're at, and that way the forage bugs will will get picked up, and you start eliminate the ones that are collecting food to take back to harbor more and growth at the nest. The next part is to make a feeding spot to get rid of them. You need to move the spot so they will move. You need to get some sugar, honey, and water and mix this up. Like 50, you know, three quarters of each kind and mix up so you get a heavy syrup solution. And make an open feeder. This will get them some bitches to move away from the spot you're working into a different location. And I would use like a chicken watering unit. Uh, you know, just something stand up. You fill up a hummingbird feeder, something that you can hang out somewhere and let them drown in the food source. So the best is the chicken feeder that way that if it's clean, you know, they're going to drown in the, the source of the sugar leaves and trying to, trying to feed. Uh, make sure you keep it cleaned out every other day to keep them from having something to walk on if they're by the feeders. And that way they will drown. Uh, but you want to move them far from where you're working. And I'm going to let you know, after a few days, like the wasp traps, um, they will be all over these units. You're going to see, you know, 25 to 30 of them. And you can just walk over there with the 25-foot wasp killing spray and just knock the hell out of them off the thing. Just start spraying down the unit. Uh, there will be heaps of them in the traps, and you can just spray them. You can clean the traps after you're done, refilling them. And setting them out, letting them get back to where they knew where the food source is. And now you're really starting to knock them out. You have the wasp traps catching the ones that are foraging. And you have this feeder that's clear on the other side that you're spraying them and just killing them in one direct location. And this is going to start eliminating the wasp as well as stopping the food source so they propagate more. Now if you get a chance, move the dirt. Soak it with soap and a water mixture and turn it. You have your suit on. This will help you get closer to the nest. Without just pouring mass chemicals on the dirt, do this a few times, making it into a mud, suffocating the stinging horde. The dish soap I would use would be Dawn liquid soap. And I would put one cup to one gallon in a water or sprayer and then use a garden hose to keep adding the water to the soap mix. So really spray down the top of the dirt with like a Hudson sprayer. Get it so it's really good. Take a garden hose and then really saturate it so it really starts soaking in the dirt. And then turn it a couple times. You know, if you get it into a mud solution, you're going to not only suffocate them in the own mud. Dawn soap really does a number on Apis. So try that and get that going. And last resort. This is a little out of the bounds. I mean, you were trying not to use any chemicals, but... If you know where the nest is, use the tarp and cover them. But this time, get a bug fogger that kills, man. And I would say fogger. Don't try to douse the ground with pesticides and stuff. But this will kill the bugs under the tarp, right on contact. 
Uh, the good one thing about it is it will not last for more than a f- about three days. And then you can turn the pile, adding fertilizer and the soap and water mix to kind of clean up the mess and revitalize the soil. The fogging unit that I would use is the can of Raid Fogger in an orange can. This one is specially made up to kill wasp and apis. You will find it uh, at any hardware store, Lowe's, Home Depot. You could probably order it off Amazon line if you're looking for it. And what happens is it will fill up the tarp with the fog and the bugs will inhale it, killing them within 24 hours. When they come in direct contact, it will kill them instantly. But I would use this as the last resort because then you're going to be using on the chemical on the dirt and you'll have to revitalize it. But stick a couple cans underneath it, throw the tarp down, right? It'll just be like gassing them inside of a building, but you've made it so it's a contained area. And then turn the dirt, man. And that's the last resort. But I think you're setting up wasp traps to kind of catch the forager, setting a feeding station up where you can directly kill and isolate the wasp during the day when they're feeding. You'll do a lot better. This is about the best I can do, man. I've used this on ground bumblebees at a children's home that was uh, occupied with a handicap ramp. And it was getting a few kids in the wheelchairs. So over a two-week time span, I, I took care of all the little stinging bastards, and they were gone. Hey, I am the bee whisperer, Michael Jordan of a bee-friendly company, telling you to get into a winter beekeeping class in September so you can try to save your stock of bees. We offer a few Check us out, see if you're in our locations where we're having them. Um, I want you to also uh, be on the lookout for October for the Harvest Moon Mead Party at Neoteric Farms, October 15th in Lakewood, Colorado. And then my big one, my favorite one, Jackson Nine Mile Farm, October 26th through the 29th, where you can get a taste of Grindle's Tears, the only place that you'll ever get to taste it. We make it specially for that event. So come and try to join that event and have some Grindle's Tears with us. Hey, that's about all I have. Get your honey from a beekeeper respect. Buy from a cottage industry. Help your fellow man. For one day, you're going to be that man that needs help, too. So anyway, um, two additions I have. Like Mike said, you might want to buy a bee suit. I'm going to say if you're going to mess with these things, buy a bee suit. It's probably cheap insurance and probably wear, like, I don't know, heavy canvas, like Carhartt stuff underneath and all. Because yellow jackets, and I'm I'm going to guess these are probably yellow jackets, can sting through a basic bee suit at times in certain ways and in certain angles. And they do suck. They're, uh, they're very, very hostile little critters. The other thing is, I, I don't know if this would work or not. I, I have no idea... We use a product here on Fire Ants called Antifuego that's made up with compost tea, molasses, and orange oil. And um, that, that product works very well on ants. And it works by dissolving their exoskeletons, and it actually improves the soil. It can shock young plants or recently transplanted plants if you do it right at the same time. But once you have an established plant, it does nothing uh, of harm at all. And I don't know if maybe, you know, a gallon of that mixed to, uh, you know, like a five-gallon sprayer drenched into that would work. I don't know if it's worth that or trying that, but um, it it does absolutely melt ants into oblivion. And uh, once you're melted, you're not a problem for people anymore. Next question I have is for Darby Simpson on setting up infrastructure for a dairy. Hello, everybody. This is Darby Simpson calling in once again for the TSP Expert Council to answer another question, and this week I've got a unique one uh, that came in from Heather out in Colorado, and Heather has decided that she wants to start a small uh, herd of dairy cattle, 
and she's got some uh, questions regarding watering the animals and milking the animals and uh, and also uh you know grasses for the animals so a lot of logistical questions she's got about 43 acres she's planning on uh doing some silvopasture and she wants to get these guys uh you know out out on pasture but she's kind of wondering you know uh how to get water to them and you know should she uh work to take them to a milking parlor each day or should she take a milking parlor to the cows each day and yeah, so we're just going to get into this and, and break down her questions. Um, so Heather, the first thing you mentioned is, uh, you, you know, how, uh, how can I help you water your animals? And if I have any, you know, any ideas on, uh, that, and I tell you what we've done here, we made a, a, a significant investment into a buried water system. And I think, you know, anytime we're talking about, uh, particularly larger livestock like cattle, that are going to use a lot of water. Uh, you know, they can, they can drink 10, 20, 30 gallons of water a day per head. Um, I, I think it's worthwhile to make that infrastructure investment into a, a buried water system. And what we've done here, we've got a, about a one and a half inch, uh, main line that comes, uh, out, out of our house and goes out to our pastures. Uh, then every few hundred feet or so, off of that main line, we've got a, a buried post hydrant that comes up that we can then connect to with garden hose and we can extend that garden hose, you know, two, three, four hundred feet in, in any direction. And that really helps us cover a whole lot of acres. Uh, we, we put in about 3,600 buried feet of pressurized water back in 2013 was when we got that done. And I tell you, uh, we've built a lot of stuff around here. Uh, a lot of fence, a lot of equipment, uh, you know, portable shelters, you name it, we've built it. That's probably the best thing I've done to date in terms of logistics was get that buried water system in. Uh, there's nothing worse than moving water by hand in the winter for a, a herd of cattle. Um, and, and having clean, fresh, and cool, the operative word cool, water for your livestock is just so key. Uh, to animal health and animal performance. So, you know, you're talking about 40 plus acres here. I mean, that's a sizable piece of land. So I would encourage you to kind of do like an overall farm plan, kind of a, a macro view, if you will, uh, you know, kind of lay out the borders with your, your external fence and then think about how you're going to subdivide, uh, you know, with some, some permanent interior fence that's going to work in conjunction with your silvopasture and your swales and your trees. And then start thinking about, okay, how am I going to lay out my water on top of that so that it works, okay? Uh, once you've got that done, then we can work on answering the next question you had, which was, you know, how do I get the uh, the animals back to the milking parlor each day, or should I take the milking parlor to the animals? Now, for those that don't know, a, a popular thing to do uh, with dairy animals is instead of having them walk back to a barn or a milking parlor each day is you actually build what's called a, a portable milking parlor and you actually take that out to the cows and you just milk them right where they're at. Um, now, as you mentioned, Heather, you know, we don't do dairy here. Uh, I, I don't have dairy cattle. I don't intend to <laughs> ever have dairy cattle. Um, so, you know, I can't really uh, talk about the pros and cons of each one of those, you know, in particular. The, the first thing I would tell you is if you're, you're thinking about doing this operation for profit, 
Look into your state laws. What do your state laws say about using a portable milking parlor? Is that okay or is it not okay? I know that in some states, like Virginia, it's it's, it's absolutely okay, and then I, I know in some other states it's not. You have to have an inspected, fixed milking parlor. So I think really you need to answer that question first. If it were me, though, uh, and, and based on what I've seen, and I do have some friends that have 100% grass-fed dairies, and they are pro full-time farmers. That's what they do. I would simply, when I'm doing that farm plan, I would build a central laneway. And your cows will get trained. They they will take that laneway back to the milking parlor twice a day. Uh, they know where to go. They know what to do. They'll get into the routine. And, and that's what I would do is just build a permanent laneway. And that's going to basically be a road that's, you know, fenced on either side. You can have gates into your subdivided uh, paddocks, you know, and you just let them use that laneway to, to get back every day. You're, you yourself are going to use that laneway for moving, you know, equipment and uh, feed with that laneway. Now we're talking about it. It makes all kinds of sense to have our buried water right next to that laneway with our post hydrants. You're starting to get the picture that the whole thing just all kind of works together here, flows together. That's what I would do if it were me, if I were going to start a dairy. I, I would have my, my parlor, my my storage, my my cheese making area, all that would be in one central location up by the house, up by the home uh, or, you know, main barn there on the property. And then th that's how I would do it. That's how I would tackle it. Um, now, your last question, re you know, revolved around what kind of, you know, perennial drought tolerant plants uh, could you put out there that make great cow fodder, you know, particularly for milk production? Um so I can give you some ideas here. I mean, you definitely want a wide assortment of things, um, legumes and grasses. One thing that's really drought tolerant, at least here in the Midwest, is fescue. Uh, and it is actually something the cows love going into this time of the year because it becomes very concentrated with sugars as we start getting lower temperatures at night. Um, it, it, uh, it really helps them to put on a lot of weight and a lot of fat going into the, the fall and the winter season. Now, I don't know how that translates into a dairy operation. I can't really comment about what grasses are really great for milk production because I have never studied it, but I, I will, I will tell you that drought tolerance can best be dealt with by managing your cows properly in a true rotational grazing methodology where you're building soil and that's going to help you uh you know trap and and capture every drip of water that hits your pastures and it's absolutely amazing what your pastures will do after about two or three years of good rotational grazing management so that's the first thing i would tell you beyond that i, I would tell you to look for some local resources uh you know contact some other local dairy farms and go do a farm visit offer to work uh for part of a day and pick their brains and see what they've got planted out there and ask them, like, what works, what doesn't work, what have you had good success with. Try your local extension agents, uh, you know, uh, through your, your uh, state university, your ag uh, university, whatever school that is. Uh, see if they've got any publications that you could read up on. And then lastly, what I would tell you to do is see, see if there's not a regional seed company available. Here in the Midwest, we've got in actually just uh, about an hour west of my farm in central Indiana, we've got a privately owned uh, regional seed company called Byron Seeds. And I can call over there and ask them about anything and say, you know, 
this is what I got going on. This is what I want to accomplish. This is the kind of animal operation I have, and these are my goals. And they will point me to very specific um, uh, grasses and legumes that are really dialed in for, for what I need uh, to plant in my pastures. And I'll bet you if you look around, you'll find a, a local resource uh, like that for yourself out there in Colorado. I really can't comment on it more than that because you're in a totally different region. Uh, with totally different plants and, and you have a completely different business model here in that you want to do a dairy. So, uh, really Heather, that's all I got for you. I hope you found that helpful. Uh, if not, shoot me an email and I'll help you sort through this a little bit further. Um, for the rest of you, uh, listening to this, if you would like to learn more about me, please feel free to go out to my website at darbysimpson.com and you can read a bunch of uh, free blog articles out there on for-profit farming uh, to do with pastured poultry, pork, and grass-fed beef production. A lot of good stuff out there that you can you can read. Uh, and if you, if you really dig this kind of stuff, uh, go on out to Permaculture Voices and check out the Grass-Fed Life podcast that I've been doing each week since the beginning of April uh, with Diego Footer of Permaculture Voices. There are over 20 episodes out there now, most of them in excess of an hour. So there's there's well over 20 hours of, of podcast listening that has to do with this very, very thing. We have covered it all. There's really not a whole lot we have not hit on. So I would encourage you to check that out. If you want to go deeper, uh, Diego and I are actually working together to host a transitional farming uh, workshop here at our farm in November of this year. It's going to be from November 3rd through November 5th. This is a for-profit uh, business essential workshop. It's going to be three days. It's going to be intense. It's going to be packed. Uh, if you are wanting to transition from the corporate gig to a, a full-time farming gig, or if you're full-time farming now, but you're having a hard time uh, making everything jive and making everything work, I would really encourage you to, to, to head out and, and check out the itinerary we've got out on that workshop. It's going to be awesome. Uh, seats are already selling. Uh, we do have 12 VIP tickets available where you get a bunch of extra goodies if you're one of the first 12 students to register. But again, go on out to permaculturevoices.com and check out that workshop. And I hope to see a few of you here this November in Indiana. Uh, everyone else, as always, have a great weekend. Thanks for uh, sending in the questions. Keep them coming, guys. Take care. You know, there's sometimes we have questions for an expert council member that I could kind of sort of do okay with it. They can just do better because it's their area of specific expertise. And then there's times we have questions where my answer, my question, you know, the question that if it was asked to me would be, oh, that was one of those. So aren't we lucky to have people like Darby Simpson and all the expert council members out there to answer these complex questions like this for those of you guys that have them? And I'd just like to take a second right now and thank all of the expert council members for the service they've get, given us. It's really been about – it's getting close to a year since we established expert council. And uh, so – uh, these guys have been plugging at it for a long time for us. And a lot of these folks, even before there was an official council, have been helping the show uh, for a long time. They're, it's, it's definitely a blessing to have the expert council with us. Because when I say a year, I mean in the, the current incarnation, the, 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 the new world of expert council that's become a formalized thing has just been awesome. Anyway, um, the next question is for me and the last one of the day. This one comes from Jared. Jared said, why would President Obama, the author of the program, which will forever be called Obamacare, 
knowingly enacted if it was designed to fail. Details, I was listening to episode 1845, in which you referred to your prediction that Obamacare would fail and lead to total government takeover of health care. I don't disagree with the idea in general or that the failure with Obamacare is coming. My question is, why would any president... Uh, the men of which are always worried about their legacy, be a part of this. If Obamacare fails, the failure will forever be linked to President Obama. Why would he knowingly enter into this deal? He would have to know that if government-run health care is enacted, it will only be because his failure as a president, which history will note. That's the part I don't understand. I eagerly, eagerly await your thoughts. Thanks, Jared. I want to start out with this little bit of irony here. So I was looking for a meme or something like that to use for an image for today's show. And so I put designed to fail into uh, Google and clicked on image search. And like the third or fourth image was a picture of a guy in, it looks like kind of like a Secret Service type guy or a cabinet guy in a black suit. And uh, he's reading a newspaper and it says, everyone hates it. And Obama's sitting behind them, all happy, all happy, with his you know, big smile on his face, looking at a piece of paper. And the guy says, uh, your health care initiative finally has bipartisan agreement. And it doesn't seem to concern him at all. So I, I decided if I'm going to use this image, I, since it's like somebody else's image, I should link photo credit to where it is. So I went to see where it was. It's an article. And the author of the article, and it's at janmorganmedia.com, says that it has always been his contention, uh, contention that Obamacare was designed to fail. And if you have any doubt about that, they're now protecting smokers on, as a pre-existing condition. So, it, it, see, if you have lung cancer, that's, that's a pre-existing condition. Maybe you caused it with smoking. But up until now, you've had higher health insurance rates if, let's say, you didn't have lung cancer or emphysema or any other... Um, health problems yet from your smoking because you're a smoker, because it's a behavior, not a condition. Okay? Well, under, you know, the new rules of Obamacare, which just seem to keep metamorphizing as we go forward, if you are a smoker, you can no longer be charged a higher rate because it's a pre-existing condition and protected as a pre-existing condition. Th this is bullshit. This is horse crap. Because if you're choosing to smoke... You're knowingly creating damage to your health, period. So protecting smokers from things by calling a behavior a condition is ridiculous. It's, it's, it's positively ridiculous. It's, and his contention is this is another example. They want it, they want it to fail as fast as it can. I, I think they do, but I think their plan is for it to fail for the next president. So Obama gets it passed. He's done, right, and he's gone. And then the next president... And that's what I said. I, see, again, I said this back in 2009, I believe. And it was before the bill was even on the floor of the Senate and the House. They were just talking about it. And they were talking about what the bill would be, right? This 1,800-page monstrosity or whatever it is that nobody read before they voted on it because we have to pass it to see what's in it, right? That's what Nancy Pelosi told us. It, it, it's, it, it's almost comical, the ass clown circus that, that went with Obamacare being passed. How the hell do you vote on a bill that big that you haven't even read? You don't even know what you're, what you're committing the country to for perpetuity, for God's sakes. This isn't a simple law that says you can't do anything anymore and you just pass a new law that says you can. Obamacare is extremely complex. When this thing 
fails completely and it will, it won't just go away. And, and your promises that people like the Republicans make that say we're going to repeal and replace it are bullshit. It's too ingrained. It has to be worked with now. That was, it was designed to be that way. So why would Barack Obama go on along with it? Well, first of all, he's not the author of it. It's not his plan. He didn't write it and the Congress didn't write it either. It was written by insurance companies. It was written by drug companies. It was written in part by AARP, who was supposed to be advocating for older people that got screwed by this thing with changes to Medicaid. Or Medicare, I should say. I'm sorry. Medicare. It was written by industry, like all your laws are written. Your laws are not written by congressmen. They're written by lobbyists. Your, your laws about agriculture are written by companies like Monsanto and Conagra. So they didn't author this. And it's only called Obamacare because people that don't like it called it Obamacare because they don't like Obama. He never asked anybody to call it Obamacare. But all that's irrelevant. It doesn't matter. Let's say he wanted it to be called Obamacare. This is what you refer to. And this is kind of a good concept for lifestyle design of failing forward. So if you're going to start a business, you're going to have failures. So you, you fail. Okay, fine. Whatever. You fail. So you fail. But you, you, you're advancing as you fail, and once you find the failure, you correct it and you move on. You fail up. Failing up is another way this is talked about in business planning and business mentoring circles. So if your plan is to fail up, in other words, well, what Obama always wanted was a single-payer health care system. That's what Obama always wanted, a complete government takeover of health care. But how would a single health care health How would a single-payer system actually work in the United States? It wouldn't be there's Government Insurance, Inc., right? And then you, you, you pay into that, and then the government pays your bills. No, the individual policies would still be backed by the insurance companies that offered the legislation. Kind of like Freddie Mae, Fannie Mae, Freddie Mac type of thing, right? So the insurance companies are going to end up in a situation where they can't lose under a single-payer system. You'll be assigned. It'll be like a pool. Well, you get Blue Cross. You get Aetna. But it's all the same, and it's all through government. The government guarantees the benefit and gives the insurer money, and they're only liable up to a certain point, and the taxpayers as a whole are on the hook for everything after that. That single-payer system, a la President Obama, that's where we're going. And this is why they're going to say they're repealing and replacing it or repairing it depending on who wins. That's how they'll market it. In the end, you get the same thing. Single-payer system, everybody gets it with pricing control so that you can afford it because now you can't afford it and you can't. So when that all happens and it's done and over with and the new system's in place and it's like Social Security for medicine... They're not going to say Obama failed. Oh, my God, Obama was a pioneer. He was the one that knew this was the place to be all along. And all of the problems that existed, it stopped complaining. If we would have done this back in 2009, 2010, like Obama wanted, all those problems would have never happened. We're still dealing with the legacy of the people that fought it in the first place, and we had to come to a compromise, which was halfway. Don't worry, it'll work itself out over time, and everybody's insured now, and nobody has to worry, except for the fact that you might wait a year to get a heart surgery and die while you're waiting. But that's okay, 
because that's the way the rest of the world does it. And by golly, shouldn't this nation just be like every other country in the world? That way we're all fair, we're all equal, and everybody will like us again. This is the mentality of the people that run your country. The freaking psychopaths are in charge of the asylum. Which is why I have so little to do with participating in it. But you want to know why he went along with it? Because it was the only thing they could get done at the time. And they view it as failing forward. And they don't care how many people are destroyed. They don't care how many people are bankrupted. And they don't care how many people are harmed. All they care is does everybody stuff money into their pockets and do all the politicians get more power. That's all they care about. And let's stop talking about this. I've given you an answer. I'm going to chill now. Let's, uh, let's talk about something else here as we wrap up. You know, you guys, I always talk about... Uh, doing your shopping uh, on Amazon through tspaz.com to support the show. Today I have a really cool book for you, and I want to tell you about it kind of as a show segment rather than just a, you know, the Amazon item of the day. It's called Ursats in the Confederacy. I mentioned this on a show recently, and I forgot to put the link in the show notes, and I was thinking we just got through the Civil War in the history section. Maybe we, I should really talk to you more about this. And Ursats is a replacement usually an inferior replacement. So, like, uh, 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 a way to think about this would be uh, you, you can't get coffee, so you dig up chicory and you roast the roots till they're dark brown or black and grind them up and make a inferior coffee substitute. And you call it coffee, but it's not coffee, except in the Confederacy during the blockade, people had to do far worse than that. Let me read you a piece of a review Uh, about this book by somebody who had read it and, and made a really great point. During World War II, men and women on the home front were encouraged to use it up, wear it out, make do or do without. After reading this book, however, the men and women of the southern home front did that and more. From 1941 to 1945, butchers may have asked for a free soup bone for the dog, but as the Civil War dragged on, it wasn't unusual for a Confederate butcher to hang a dressed rat in the window where, when one was available. Hmm. See, what this book is about is something we talk about all the time, but we don't really get it, the shit hitting the fan. We, we talk about it as though it's never really happened before. We talk about it like it's some new, mystical, dystopian future thing, but right here at home, the shit hit the fan for millions of people in the South during the Civil War, and it happened where... Never was a musket ball fired in anger, where the cannons didn't come, where the canister shot didn't land, where the people were still living and trying to get by and just couldn't get anything, where food ran out, where things that were being stored ran out. This book talks about how some people speculated in the beginning that this was going to happen and hoarded a bunch of it and then profiteered off of it, but that didn't even last very long. And it became to the point where they needed to keep what they had planned to profiteer on because they didn't have anything themselves because the money couldn't buy anything because there was nothing to buy. It doesn't just talk about what happened, but what people did to survive it, what people did to get through it. This book was written in the 1950s. It's incredibly researched. Tons of footnotes and, and sources. Um, it is not a fiction book. It is not a novel. It is a historical fact record with many stories about many things that really did happen in history. And if we're concerned about our future and think that really hard things could happen again, really tough times could come back again, it might be good to go back and look at what did happen and how people did get through it right here in America. 
It also brings home what war really is. I think one of the problems that we as Americans have is we've been so blessed that we don't know how terrible war is. No living American has ever seen real warfare in America. And it's been a long time since there's been a living American that had. The last time there was true, real, ongoing war in America was in 1941 when the Japanese bombed Pearl Harbor in, in Hawaii. Yes, that hit U.S. soil once, and that was it. Then we went through another four, year, four plus years of war without ever having war on U.S. soil again. It wasn't 9-11. We had a few buildings collapse, but it didn't. The war that precipitated after that, the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan, those wars didn't happen here on U.S. soil. Terrorist attacks is not the same as ongoing warfare and the pain and destruction and death and blood that go with ongoing warfare. The last time true warfare was waged in America that real Americans who weren't part of the battle really had to deal with the consequences of it was 1861 to 1865, the American Civil War. And we talked about how children are now learning about 9-11 that were never, weren't even born yet when this happened. We're talking about the last time that battle happened. 1865 was when the war ended. If you were a year old, you would have been 100 years old in 1965. And if you were a year old and you made it to 100 years old, you wouldn't remember what the war was like. It's been a long time since anybody that you could talk to, that you could see, that even as a child you could sit on their knee and hear them tell you about it. It's been a long time since anybody like that walked the streets of America. This book is a record of that time. Our country needs to know. Because when we engage in war in other nations... We'd better damn well know why. We'd better damn well, damn well know what we're doing, why we're doing it, what victory looks like, why we need to be doing it, and do we really need to be doing it, because this is what we're doing to people. What's in this book. And this book's not an anti-war book. It's just a record of war book. And if you think suffering and pain have changed since 1860s, well, they have. As technology's improved, they've gotten worse. But the reality of suffering, the reality of hunger, the reality of having your home destroyed, even if you don't die in it, but having nothing left, the reality of having advancing troops push you out, the reality of being trapped in something that you can't control has not changed. And the reality of how you have to deal with it has not changed. This book tells you about that. I really recommend you consider reading it. If not, or if you've already read it, remember you can always support the show by shopping for your Amazon products by going to tspaz.com first. Click the link to go through to Amazon or click the link to see the item of the day. Again, today is Earthsats in the Confederacy, Shortages and Substitutions on the Southern Home Front by Mary Elizabeth Massey. A masterpiece of historical record. All right, with that, also remember that we do have a sale going on. Actually, it's about to end in 15 minutes, so it won't even matter. The 30, 30, 30, 30 sale, $30 for MSB. I wanted to say this, though, today for those of you who listen over the weekend. I've heard from a few of you guys that have had some technical issues, the discount code not working, and stuff not going through. I'm a hard ass when it comes to my sale deadlines. I say when it's over, it's over. If you had a technical problem, 
if you put the discount code in, I don't know why the hell this is happening for like one out of 20 people. They put the discount code in, it doesn't work. You go to PayPal, it still says 50 bucks. If anything like that has happened, contact me. We'll work it out. I will give you the price. I will honor the discount. If you had a technical reason for the problem, everybody else, the discount's over. But it's always a good time to join the member support brigade and get discounts and help support the show. Um, really always is. With that, um, let's uh, remind you also that another great thing to do is consider supporting the Survival Podcast Business Directory because... All of the, you know, many of the people that are entrepreneurs in this audience advertise there, and that way you're doing business with people in the community itself. Today's supporter of the directory is Liberty Fox Defense. They provide concealed carry classes in Utah and offer custom pistol holsters for sale on their site. Go to libertyfoxdefense.com to learn more about that and go to tspbiz.com, tspbiz.com. Uh, to see everybody that's in our business directory. It is the place to, to find people to do business with and to be found by other members of our community. Last but not least today, I want to, uh, I want to finish up with our closing song. It's an interesting song. I said I would do an upbeat song and this song talks about somebody dying. So it doesn't sound very upbeat, but it is kind of an upbeat tune. And it's from, uh, at the time in history we talked about a lot today. When school children still hid under desks. When America still had fear that someone else in the world might be able to start a war with us and that we would have to engage in the most terrific of war. And in some ways, I think we had a little more humility back then because even though we, we consider ourselves a world power, we didn't consider ourselves the world power. And I don't know that we are the world power today. I think we consider ourselves that now, and it gives us a false sense of security and therefore arrogance. But in this time, there was a simpler world. There wasn't a Facebook, there wasn't a YouTube, there wasn't a Twitter, there wasn't an Internet. Not, not a real Internet, not like we think of the Internet today. Um, when you needed to make a phone call, you had to go home or find somebody's house. There was no cell phones Maybe a few, but they were the big bricks that only the really rich people had. And there was a certain, I don't know, there was a certain quality of life back then, a simpler happiness when things were good. Like, as long as things were somewhat good, you could just be happy about that instead of being so worried about everything else, even though there were, in many ways, much bigger things to worry about. The song is by Kenny Rogers. It's called The Gambler. And... I think that anybody that's probably 40 or older and many that are younger have at least at one time in their life been somewhere sitting around a campfire or something like that when somebody pulled out an acoustic guitar and started playing it and you ended up with a whole bunch of people singing this song together. If you haven't, you should find some people and you should go do it because there's just something about it that makes you feel good. There's a lesson in this song, too. See, this song is about you know playing cards, you know, know when to hold them, know when to fold them, know when to walk away, know when to run. Don't count your money, that type of thing. Yeah, you know, we all know the words of this song, unless you're really, really young and lived under a rock or something. But this song's about life. This song's not about playing cards. See, we are all dealt hands in life. All of us. Sometimes we get really bad hands, and sometimes we get really good hands. But every hand's a winner, and every hand's a loser. Those that are given incredible opportunities beyond the dreams of others become failures in life. Completely fall down. 
Some of the children of the wealthy, the way they behave is preposterous. They end up in prison and jail. Think of people like Lindsay Lohan. But all of us know people that you just think, man, this person had everything and they failed at life. Or at least they're actively failing for now. They don't have to stay that way, but for now, they've really made their life hard. And then we know people who grew up without a lot of opportunity, who had to struggle just to get an opportunity, and that opportunity sucked. And they became incredibly successful. Because it's all in how you play the game. It's all in how you play the game, guys. That's life. And sometimes you feel like, man, I just can't catch a break. Sometimes I even feel that way. I'm like, damn, I can't get you. Like when the third thing breaks on the farm that day. You know? And I always, whenever I say that under my breath, I always catch myself and go, dude, really? Come on. You've been dealt a pretty good hand by life. But the way you get dealt good hands is you stay in the game long enough. And the way you stay in the game long enough is you make the best of the hands that you get until the really good ones come. Every hand's a winner. Every hand's a loser. It's up to you how you play them. With that, this has been Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live the be- that better life if times get tough or even if they don't. On a warm summer's evening, on a train bound for nowhere, I met up with a gambler. We were both too tired to sleep, so we took turns of staring out the window at the darkness to boredom overtook us. And he began to speak He said, son, I've made a life Out of reading people's faces And knowing what the cards were By the way they held their eyes So if you don't mind my saying I can see you're out of aces For a taste of your whiskey I'll give you some advice So I handed him my bottle And he drank down my last swallow Then he bombed a cigarette And asked me for a light And the night got deathly quiet And his face lost all expression Said if you're gonna play the game, boy You gotta learn to play it right You got to know when to hold them Know when to fold them Know when to walk away And know when to run You never count your money When you're sitting at the table There'll be time enough for counting When the dealing's done Every gambler knows That the secret to surviving Is knowing what to throw away Knowing what to keep Cause every hand's a winner And every hand's a loser And the best that you can hope for Is to die in your sleep And when he finished speaking He turned back toward the window Crushed out his cigarette Faded off to sleep And somewhere in the darkness The gambler, he broke even But in his final words I found an ace that I could keep You got to know when to hold them Know when to fold them Know when to walk away And know when to run You never count your money When you're sitting at the table There'll be time enough to count 
when the deal is done. You got to know when to hold them. When to hold them. Know when to fold them. Know when to walk away. And know when to run. You never count your money. When you're sitting at the table, there'll be time enough for counting. When the dealing's done, you got to know when to hold them. Know when to fold them. Know when to walk away. Know when to run. You never count your money. When you're sitting at the table, there'll be time. 